0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis to all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian I'm delighted to be back for my enforced sojourn and also to be back with me old pal Duncan Castles to bring you, of course, everything that is new and beyond uh, what most major media outlets can provide you with, i.e. the inside information. We start today where else but at uh, Manchester United, another dark week for the Old Trafford Club, which um, rather interestingly uh, culminated in players being told that they had the week off. You may have read in some places that the players were surprised to find out that they'd been given such a long period. And we can confirm that up until last Sunday morning, there was no plan in the schedule of either training, rehabilitation, or any work that had been planned to be done this week. Being cancelled, uh, despite of course it being International Week and there being a few players rather than all of the players around the training ground. What's perhaps even more surprising is that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the underfarm manager, uh, had not planned to go back to his homeland of Norway, and it was only after a meeting on the Saturday evening, having been defeated by Manchester City, and a conversation with Richard Arnold and Ed Woodward that uh, Solskjaer was then informed the following uh, evening that the club had put a private plane at his disposal uh, in order to take him and his family to where they wanted to go. Solskjaer did not argue with this. Uh, I assume, we assume, here at Transfer Window Podcast, that he took the message as uh, they wanted to have a, wanted him to have some time off given the stress and the strain he's currently under, but under the results that Manchester United have been turning out. Now, Duncan, this if you were an employer stroke employee, if you look at that relationship and you were effectively told to go away on holiday um, because the people who employ you believe that you needed a rest, how would you interpret that? Because to me, that looks quite, a serious statement with regards to, okay, they've got a duty of care to Solskjaer regarding his mental sort stroke, psychological well-being and the stress that he clearly is under. However, at the same time, Solskjaer was prepared to work through this and was not given that option. Instead, was set off packing, if you like, to try and recharge his batteries. How would you read it?
1: Well, I've never heard of something like this um, with a football manager before. The club saying go and take a holiday because you need one. Um, Obviously he's in a position where Manchester United are continuing to brief that um, they are not going to change the manager immediately, but also not briefing that Solskjaer will remain in situ uh, on a permanent basis. Um, It's actually amazing that he's still in a job, uh, given the results and, uh, and the nature of the work he has done. Leading up to those results, given the response to the dressing room, where there are now um, very senior members of the Manchester United squad briefing uh, off record that they feel that the coach has to change um, if they are to achieve what they expect to be able to achieve with the quality of squad. They have gathered there and remember, this is one of only two squads in the history of the game that have cost over a billion euros of transfer fee commitments to put together. he lost comprehensively in a result that would have seen most managers sacked—a five-nil uh, to Liverpool—and then, if anything, managed to um, have an even worse performance against Manchester City in a, in a two-nil defeat, where they they barely touched the ball in uh, Manchester City's box and and seemed content to to play like a a, a bottom of the table team and and just minimise the the damage. Um, I so saw Pep Guardiola after the game talking about how it was the game that they d- dominated the most in their time. And and like Liverpool, essentially used the game as a training exercise in in the second half. And this is at Old Trafford. This is a manager who now has just 10 wins in, in 25 uh, games, two clean sheets in 24, 11 league games without a clean sheet at Old Trafford. Longest run in over 50 years. Um, His last Old Trafford clean sheet came in April against um, Granada, otherwise known as Sam Allardyce's car. Um, Run up the record Premier League defeat, uh, run up the record home Premier League defeat, uh, has lost as many games, home league games in six weeks as his predecessor did in his entire Manchester United career. Um, As one of our, as one of our listeners pointed out on Twitter during the Manchester City game, looking at the uh, the formation, the average, average positions of Manchester United players had uh, had been in against City. He, he basically reinvented the flying wedge formation, um, something that was banned in American football and rugby because it uh, because it, it uh, resulted in an injury to opponents. Something I have never seen, and I remember uh, passing that formation detail around some some, uh, important figures in football, and they're just laughing at at the way the club has set up. Um, I think it's pretty clear that a lot of this is about not having a replacement immediately available to take over as Manchester United manager. They had the opportunity to appoint Antonio Conte. Conte was interested in the job. Conte was ready to go back to work, as was demonstrated when he took Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, A few days later, United were not convinced that he was the right fit to the club. They they are putting out a message that they still believe in the cultural reboot, um, the the kind of PR story they've sold around Solskjaer, and they therefore want a manager to fit that profile. And I think that reduces down to most likely a couple of names, who one of whom they've been interested in for a long time, Maurizio Pochettino, Um, who may become available because he did not want to be at Paris Saint-Germain this summer. He was ready to go back to Tottenham. Paris Saint-Germain, obviously a very fragile situation for any coach. I can see why the Glazers are looking at the possibility that Pochettino might become available at some point during the season, at the end of the season, and they they can therefore employ him at no cost. Another name very prominent is Brendan Rodgers. Um, who has a profile in terms of the kind of football he plays and development of youth that would appeal to that and fit with that cultural reboot um, idea. Um, And as we've said in the podcast, um, is interested in uh, moving from Leicester at some point in the not too distant future to one of the top clubs in England Interestingly, as Ian, as you you pointed out, um, and as Jonathan Northcroft in last uh, week's podcast pointed out, there is a strong interest there from Manchester City um, to have kind of set him up as a potential replacement for Pep Guardiola should he leave. So in principle, you could have a decision to be made by Brendan Rodgers, whether he prefers to go to Manchester United or Manchester City, which I'm interested to know what you're view Ian would be on that as someone who knows Roger as well.
0: Well, Duncan, um, Brendan is very much a traditionalist. Uh, His upbringing in Northern Ireland um, obviously saw him take a great interest in in the football across the Irish Sea. Uh, We know that he supported Celtic as many uh, Irish Catholics do um, for obvious reasons, Um, but also Manchester United would have been his English team in the Premier League or First Division at the time, so. Uh, but when I say traditionalist, I mean he would very much be seduced by the history of Manchester United and by the challenge of resurrecting one of the greatest clubs in in the world. Uh, Manchester City, of course, have limitless assets. Uh, already have an amazing squad. Uh, his opportunity to win big prizes with City at this moment in time, you'd have to say, are greater than they would be with Manchester United. However, I suppose it's all about timing, isn't it? We know that Pep will leave at the end of his current contract. We know that Manchester United may well be available next week, never mind next summer. So if they came knocking at Brendan's door, um, I think he would definitely be very tempted.
1: I think there's also a question here that has to be asked, and I think Manchester United supporters have been asking it in increasing number, which is given Solskjaer talks so much about his love for the club and and I think genuinely about his love for the club and the one where he spent the majority of his playing career, the one where he had a a clause inserted in his contract at Malda to allow him to become Manchester United manager should they uh, ever come calling for them, which of course they did three years ago. Is he not in a position where he can see that this is not working. He can see the response to players. He can see that his constant talk about the the solution to the problem being a change of mentality is not going to make the difference or something far more fundamental there. Should he not resign and step down from the role um, as, a, uh, as a symbol of what he thinks about the club and, uh, and to, remain, to retain his status as a, a kind of legendary figure at, at Manchester United. And and there are precedents for this. Um, a very recent precedent, for example, Gennaro Gattuso, um, who left AC Milan, um, was disposed from his contract to AC Milan, with, I think, two years left on it. And Gattuso said, I will not ask for any money um, for leaving this club because this club means so much to me. Um, that is an option for Solskjaer to take. Uh, and it and it's fascinating to see why he persists in not whenever he's asked about it, he says he will not step away, he doesn't doesn't he's not considering that, doesn't feel it's the right time to do it, he's a fighter, etc. Uh you wonder whether the actions of the Glazers and the actions of the club in in presenting this uh airplane to him and, and saying going on holiday is not uh, a suggestion that perhaps it's time not just to go and, and leave the club for a week, but to leave the club on a permanent basis.
0: Indeed, indeed. Uh, I think it may be an invitation to follow Sword. I. He's been given time off to think about it. Uh, you know, the club have taken that step. Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll move swiftly along. But before we do, Duncan, uh, a couple of uh, more lighter notes. Uh, I have to give credit to uh, Micah Richards on Twitter this week who when Stephen Gerrard was appointed Aston Villa manager said, I wonder if uh, Cara will now protect Stevie the same way as Neville does. or Solskjaer." So there's a nice dick to start off before Stephen gets in the dugout. And you've got a bit of a funny story as well about Solskjaer. He seems to be a man who takes defeat well.
1: Yes, um story from Joe Lovejoy, a friend and former distinguished football correspondent for the Sunday Times, who spent a lot of time um, reporting on Solskjaer, not just as a player, but also as a manager um, when he was at Cardiff City um, uh, for his extremely unsuccessful period in where he managed to get Cardiff City relegated and from the Premier League and had them heading for relegation from the Championship. And the following season, he says, uh, he went to interview Solskjaer after a 4-0 home defeat against Steve Bruce's Hull City. And he says, I found Solskjaer in a small room off the dressing room playing keepy uppie with a balloon with a big smile on his face. Um, what he didn't say was why was he playing keepy-uppy with Harry Maguire after a 4-0 defeat
0: you have to say that Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire are becoming much more like the Chuckle Brothers every week uh, that we see them play another managerial appointment from the old golden generation of England under Svenger and Ericsson is Stephen Gerrard's move from Rangers to Aston Villa not a massive surprise Duncan um, in terms of uh the size of the clubs, et cetera, and the fact that Gerard has spent, it has to be said, a lot of time and a lot of hard work in Glasgow um, doing his job and, of course, did what he was asked, which was to prevent Celtic getting 10 in a row. Um, we've said before in the podcast that Gerard is firmly in the frame to replace Jurgen Klopp. And I think that's a very ill-kept secret. Klopp's contract expires in 2024. Interestingly, though, Gerard, for his own personal professional pride, does not want to move direct to Liverpool, having had no Premier League experience in management. He does not want to be seen as someone who's relying on his playing career as his credential to get that job, nor the patronage of the club that he spent almost his entire career at. We also understand, and this is significant, that in the contract which he has signed with Villa, which runs to 2025, there is a break in that contract in the summer of 2024. Not coincidentally, the time when Klopp was expected to leave Anfield. Uh, there will also be a, a defined compensation, so therefore Liverpool know exactly how much they have to pay to uh, trigger that clause, and it will be no more than around £5 million. Um seems to be... Uh, I was surprised by this fact, Duncan. Um, I, I wasn't aware of it. But up until the beginning of the last window... Uh, Aston Villa were the net biggest spenders for three seasons in a row out of all of Europe's top leagues
1: Yeah, th- there's a huge amount of money behind the project Aston Villa and, and I think that was one of the principal reasons why Dean Smith lost his job um, obviously Smith had done exceptionally well upon appointment, bringing them back into the division strong performances in the division but then that run of of five consecutive defeats and Villa dropping to an area of the table that they cannot afford to be and do not did not expect to be was such that um decision was made that they needed a change of management and it allowed them to secure someone that their chief executive Christian Parslow has targeted as a as a future coach to work with for for many years and Villa here have done something that Newcastle United despite uh, the huge resource that's gone behind their takeover have notably failed to achieve which is to secure their first choice for the position Uh, it wasn't the case that Villa only looked at Gerrard they uh, built up an extensive list of potential candidates who were examined should Gerard um decide not to take this opportunity but they have persuaded him and, and interestingly this this is a, a real head-to-head comparison because Stephen Gerard was one of the individuals that Newcastle United had high on their list recommended to them by several people uh, and uh, did have contact with and um, made the proposition that he become uh the, the new manager of the club to replace Steve Bruce. And Steve Gerrard backed away from that job because he felt um it was too much of a, a jump into the dark. He didn't know who he'd be working with, didn't know the structure of the club. Um and there you have I think a demonstration of a of a coach who is making rational, long term decisions with with a career goal in mind. Um, as you said, a great achievement at Rangers to stop Celtic winning 10 titles in a row. I think a lot of people were ex- extremely sceptical that Gerard would be able to achieve that when he took the job. It was a brave decision to move there. Um, they were a long way behind Celtic on the field, but he, um, and we, we talked about this in detail on the podcast at the time, he took a a, a view that Glasgow, um, the Celtic Rangers clash was a perfect Training ground to prepare himself for being manager of Liverpool and being in a city where there is great uh, rivalry between the two football teams and an expectation of success um, from a particular support. In um, in his case, it would be Liverpool's. Um, so he took a risk, but he took it in a strategic fashion, and it's paid off. and And as you're describing, he's now choosing Aston Villa as the the kind of Premier League. Um, development ground for him, working with someone in Parslow who he knows very well from the the time that Parslow was chief executive at Liverpool and and Gerard was the captain of the of that uh, team.
0: Staying with Liverpool, Duncan, as we're racing through the news today here on the Transfer Window Podcast, uh, a lot of people. Don't pay that much attention to appointments on the football administration staff, uh, unless, of course, you're a fan of that particular club. But certainly lots of speculation since Michael Edwards, who, of course, is head of recruitment at Anfield, announced he'd be leaving the club. And the club have now announced his successor. Not necessarily a great surprise, Duncan. But why choose the assistant sporting director, Julian Ward, at this point?
1: Well first of all the, the Michael Edwards leaving Liverpool had been something that had come out as a story it had been reported early in the season, but Edwards hadn't actually spoken about it It was only this week that Liverpool made a announcement a long announcement from Michael Edwards explaining why he was leaving um essentially saying he would always intended to spend no more than ten years at the club and he was ready uh, for a change of direction uh, and and a move to another football club but also introducing his successor or um, formalising his successor's appointment promotion to sporting director. This is Julian Ward. Um, he was made assistant sporting director in the summer, I, I think, um, in the expectation that that Edwards was going entering his last season. He's been at Liverpool for seven years, previously worked for the Portugal national team and Manchester City. Um, Talking to people who have worked with Julian Ward, they describe him as an extremely capable individual. Um, and it is not a surprise to them that, that Liverpool have chosen to promote from within. He is a natural successor um, who has been increasingly influential and important in Liverpool's recruitment work over several years. Um, he took charge of their uh, loan system in 2015, which is actually quite an important role in clubs like Liverpool and Chelsea, where they they build up a bank of, of talented players who they want to either gradually um, push into the first team and therefore want to place at clubs um, with similar tactical or coaching setups to Liverpool where the the player can learn skills that will adapt them for the Liverpool first team when they're ready to play there or um, build up their value uh, and sell them on at profits, which is something that Liverpool have been successful at, increasingly successful at over um, the last few years. Um, So I I think another element of this and, and, Actually, I was actually asking um, around some people in the game who they felt um, Edwards would be replaced with um, before this announcement was made. And and they emphasised that Family Sports Group have a lot in common with the Glazers in terms of uh, their appointees and that they tend to hold uh, changes within the structure of the club close to people that they already know and trust um, if possible they promote from within rather than hiring um, for external um, appointments. And that's exactly what they've, they've done with Ward. They feel that the transfer structure has been highly effective. Therefore, take the, the deputy of Edwards and, and promote him. What Edward does next, I think, is very interesting. Um, he was uh, linked with the Red Bull um, Leipzig position, and I think it, it, rather than just being at Leipzig, that would have been to take charge of the entire Red Bull Football Group in the in the same way that um, previous appointment from English football, Paul Mitchell did when when he moved from Tottenham Hotspur to the Red Bull organization. It was a report by Bilt, who rarely um, get these things wrong in uh, in their coverage of German football. It resulted in the Red Bull Leipzig. Um, senior figure Oliver Mintzlaff saying on record Michael Edwards will not be our sporting director. Fact is, we're looking for a sporting director who fits the club, our philosophy and direction. The guidance I have is that Edwards was offered that job and turned it down, decided it wasn't the correct fit for him. Um, Certainly what Mintzlaff is saying about looking for a sporting director who fits the club, our philosophy and direction seems somewhat odd as a reason that they wouldn't be appointing Michael Edwards if it's meant to be read that way because actually Edwards would seem to be quite a good fit to the Red Bull strategy. Um, The Liverpool have often recruited from that um, group of football players because the the style of football used is similar Um, and the techniques used to recruit are similar so in principle it would have seemed a, a reasonable fit but what I've been told is that Edwards rejected that and um, we shall wait and see where he moves to. But I think you can expect it to be a very significant job if he's going to step away from Liverpool um, to further his career. Uh, it has to, there, there aren't that many candidate clubs that would be seen as, uh, as progress upon being in charge of Liverpool's um, sporting and transfer structure indeed
0: uh two managers uh, Stephen Chard and Frank Lamport both uh, had the opportunity to accept an invitation to manage Newcastle United and both turned it down for their own reasons this week Newcastle and their new owners Stavely, Amanda that is, and the um, Saudi Public investment fund um, appointed Eddie Y oh sorry Eddie Howe um as their new head coach uh, Duncan your information is not surprising, I suppose. That how ended up being, I suppose, last man standing
1: rather than first choice? Definitely not first choice. Um, last man standing might be a little harsh, but there were a number of other people um, who would have got that job. You talk about Stephen Gerrard, and he is just one um, name that uh, they talked to and who had the opportunity to take over at Newcastle United and decided not to. I think in an ideal world, um, certainly Stavely's side of this, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, part of the problem Newcastle United have is you have Amanda Stavely, PCP Capital, having a management contract. She is, in principle, running the club at present, but basically her job is to make decisions and p- pass those decisions on to PIF, on to Saudi Arabia, um, to uh, rubber stamp. And if Saudi Arabia aren't happy with them, they will say, no, we're not taking this particular individual. Um, how about these individuals we propose? And ultimately, Saudi Arabia, as uh, the 80% owners of the club, make the final decisions. Stavely and PCP Capital would have liked Rafa Benitez. They, they wanted to bring him back to the club if the timing had been right, such that Benitez was available and not under employment at Everton, another Premier League club he is the man who would have been offered a job and they would have expected him to take it and expected Saudi Arabia to sign off on that. They obviously tried to get Unai Emery. Um, The story leaked in Spain and Emery stepped away from it and decided to remain at uh, Villarreal instead of moving to Newcastle United. Um, Guidance I have from the Newcastle United side is that uh, personal reasons um, were important in that decision. And uh, it was a, it wasn't as clear cut that Emory would would uh, would get the job as as it was reported. But they 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 took a knock there. Eddie Howe, I'm told, they were split over that appointment. There are people within that organisational structure where you have recommendations and decisions being made um, through a combination of owners who were not convinced that Eddie Howe was the the right appointment for. Appointment for the job. The thinking is that their situation in the league is such that they need someone who um, is familiar with Premier League football, has lots of experience of Premier League football, and can ensure they stay in the division. Priority avoid relegation this season. Eddie Howe has obviously fought against relegation on numerous uh, seasons in charge of Bournemouth, so he has that experience. Problem is, his last experience as a football coach. Was to relegate Bournemouth from the Premier League, and relegate was a, a quite a large amount of dissent in the camp, and a lot of people predicting that that Bournemouth side were going to go down because things had gone wrong in the dressing room. I'm I'm fascinated to see how Eddie does in this role. He his career is primarily at, at Bournemouth. He would had one period, unsuccessful period when he was put in charge of Burnley, then went back to Bournemouth. Um, obviously did. Uh, an exceptional and extremely unusual job in, in saving Bournemouth from relegation down um, the tiers of of English football and then taking them all the way to the Premier League for the first time. Played attacking football uh, whenever he could, um, which is unusual uh, for that type of club and obviously a fit to what uh, Staveley and co. want to introduce it at Newcastle United. Um, There're mixed opinions about his his effectiveness as a coach, and this is certainly a I I think a far bigger test for him than than anything he's done before. Um, one thing I think might be positive for uh, for Newcastle United is that uh, I was talking to uh, a, a very prominent coach about how and asking him what he felt about him as an opponent and felt about him as a manager, and he said, "Look, we." I, at one point, I commissioned a survey of um, set pieces, um, attacking set pieces, because I wanted to add some new routines to the team I was uh, coaching at the time. And the analyst who did it for me came back and said, Bournemouth have the broadest range, the widest range of attacking set piece variations of any club in European football. He hadn't been aware of that till the analyst had pointed it out. And I think digging into that further, how does spend a lot of time preparing um, the day before match day? Or work on the routines. Sometimes even working on the day of match day on set piece routines. And if you're in a situation that Newcastle United are in at the moment, with an, uh, a a mediocre squad who are struggling um, and having to play percentage football and uh, trying to scrap their way out of the division, then being able to maximise the return on set pieces, which he should be able to improve, because that's a particular specialism of his is something that's going to help. And I, and I, I think you should watch out for Newcastle um, being much more effective at those attacking set pieces than they have been um, in recent years.
0: I fear they may need more than set pieces to get them out of the scrape they right now, but however, uh, we should wait and see once uh, Premier League football resumes a week and after this one. We're going to finish today's podcast with our hero and villain section. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to choose two heroes. I'm going to be very quick about as well. Uh, The first is David Moyes, who in stark contrast to his uh, predecessor times three at Manchester United is currently enjoying the high life third place in the Premier League progress in the Europa League and showing uh, what a good manager he is with regards to his skills. And secondly, on a sadder note, uh, Sir Walter Smith, as we used to call him, uh, who passed away recently after a short illness. Uh, one of the first things he did when I came into football journalism was ban me from my books for <laughs> daring to suggest that his record in European football was not as good as Graham Soenis'. I seem to remember the phrase he used was, I was a ball hair away from a European Cup final, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then ban me. Uh, We went on to become not just good colleagues, but great friends. And he was a man of huge amount of dignity, humour and good friendship. And we will miss him greatly. Duncan, your Villain of the Week.
1: Well, I I just echo those sentiments on on Walter Smith, a hero of mine as well, not just for what he does as Scotland manager and because of his character, but also the period where he was assistant manager to Jim McLean at Dundee United, um, helping create one of the, the most successful um, and entertaining um, and tactically astute sides of um, of that generation. I think one who, if they were playing in today's football, would also um, be incredibly successful. And obviously a man of great judgment, given that he worked you out uh, very quickly uh, in that uh, No, no! <laughs> <laughs> but villain of the week, um, uh, different level altogether. Uh, Phil Lynch, Chief Executive Officer Media at Manchester United, as he describes himself on his LinkedIn profile, who uh, did a little um, podcast recently explaining how he manages the social media of Manchester United players um, for the profit of the club and to uh, supposedly benefit the players. Um, talked about how they uh, constantly monitor the uh, the reputation of the players and the response that uh, they're receiving from supporters and um, advise them and prepare them with material to to counter all of that. Um, just go and listen to what he has to say about it and you see why he deserves to be villain and why he fits so well into that Glazer organisation at Manchester United Football Club.
0: Indeed. That has been the Transfer Window Podcast for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week to bring you the news before it becomes news, of course. Uh, Please engage with us on our social media channels. We are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, You know we like to interact with you. You'll also find us on YouTube, Search Transfer Window Podcast. Until next week, as Oasis once sang, it's good to be back. Stay well, stay safe and thanks for listening.